Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholley, and the best thing you'll find on today's episode is Basil Brush telling me what he would do if he ruled the world, including putting into his cabinet Mr Blobby and Zippy and George from Rainbow. Uh, so that's coming up at the end of the podcast. Before that, we'll speak to some Ukrainians who came to Britain six months ago to find out how they're coping after a Times radio listener got in touch to help 250 families come to the UK. Uh, so that's coming up in our big thing in just a moment. But before that, it's our columnists. The columnists with Libby Rachie. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. And we say a very good morning to Libby Purvis. Morning, Libby. Morning. Why has nobody elected Bagpuss? It's a sort of Bag- you put vibe, That's interesting. You put Bagpuss in the cabinet. Yeah, Kenneth Clark look, you know, sort of. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering, would Bagpuss, would he be very active? Did he spend most of the time asleep, Bagpuss? Would he get anything done? Yep. That'll do. That'll do. You'd need Professor Yaffle as well, though. That's you? exactly right. That's a sort of, there's real and Michael I'm... Gove vibes about <laughs> Professor Yaffle. And I'm definitely adding postman packs, and you might get a bit of delivery, unlike this lot. Ah, oh, very good. Deliver, <laughs> deliver, deliver. Uh, yeah, we're talking. Um, we're talking about putting children's TV couches in the cabinet because uh, we've got Basil Bush on later. So we'll I'm very excited about that. It's quite the thing. Uh, right, let's concentrate on something um, uh, <laughs> more, more important than Basil Bush, possibly. Uh, this deal that's been struck this morning, Swella Bravman's in Paris, signing this deal with France, with the hope of deterring migrants from crossing the channel in small boats. Uh, they're increasing the number of officers patrolling the beaches. There's some more money. There's talk of drones and night vision equipment. Uh, do you think any of this will make any difference, Libby? It might do. Uh, I feel the deal is at least a bit hopeful, and it, it does show very rapidly that having a prime minister who's serious and reasonably pleasant in dealings and meetings with foreign leaders does pay off. Uh, I even get hope for the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, I think it, I think it is important. I think uh, it, there is hope. Though I have to say, I still, in spite of the doom-laden letters in the Times after Matthew Paris' piece on ID cards, I think we are going to need them as something compulsory for work and for non-emergency public services. You know, the pull factor is still really important and we ha- need to be brave about that. Yeah, we seem to have... About this time last week, I spoke to Stephen Kinnock, Labour's Shadow Immigration Minister. He said he thought the ID card should be on the table. Yvette Cooper, his boss, then sort of poured cold water on it. Uh, Danny Finkelstein then wrote in the Times last week, he changed his mind. Matthew Paris has changed his mind too. Is, is this a change in your position, Libby? 
Uh, no, no, I've, I've You've thought of it thought, for okay. quite a while. Uh, I get very annoyed about this straw man argument. You know, people say, oh, police will stop you and say, show me your papers. No, you can set limits. You can say you have to have it in order to work. You have to have it in order to access certain kinds of services. But you don't have to carry the thing anywhere, everywhere. I mean, I would, you know, lie down in the street to prevent uh, that being the law. But um, I, I think a moderate, a moderate level of ID cards and certainly to keep the black economy under slightly better control than it is, uh, it would be helpful. Uh, Rachel, where do you stand on this? Because it's, it was a big... In fact, it was exactly 20 years ago uh, this month, I think, that it was David Blunkett had launched his big consultation into uh, the use of I, the idea of ID cards. They finally got them through both houses of parliament, then it all got uh, repealed by the coalition when it came in in 2010. Do you think we've moved on from that? Yeah, I think things have changed. You think about how much and how often you have to identify yourself now when you're shopping online. Um, you know, there's the, I just think the public mood will have changed on this. Uh, and it isn't any longer this, you know, show us your papers. You could easily have some kind of digital identifier that would be much less controversial. And certainly, I think Libby's absolutely right about the pull factor. When I went to the camps in Calais a few years ago to find out, you know, to talk to people who were trying to come over the channel. Um, at that point, they were kind of hanging under the Eurostar mm. tunnels. To, do you remember? Um, but what the, the main reason people were coming here rather than staying in France or going to Germany is because they said they could work without any kind of papers. Um, and that was the that was the thing they wanted to do. It wasn't that they wanted free health care or benefits or in some cases it was that they had family and friends here. But the overwhelming thing that struck me was that it was the desire to work uh, and that you can do that in the black economy in the in Britain without uh, and in other countries you can't. Um, and that was sort of pushing them out of France into England. Um, so I think to have a, it, it also, if you really want to have a sense of taking back control, which is what people voted for in Brexit, you have to be able to know who's in the country. Um, and, and that the ID card system would help with that too. And, and Libby, there are already, I mean, I mean, it, it, there are concerns about its use and abuse, but stop and search powers and that sort of thing exist already where the police can in certain circumstances stop you and ask you what you're doing and turn out your pockets. It's not like, there aren't already ways in which the authorities can stop you going about your business if 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 certain tests are met. So it's not it's not it wouldn't be a huge leap to be able to say, well, you might have to prove your ID for certain things. Yes, I'm not very happy about the paralleling with stop and search. I think if I was if I was black, I would feel rather differently about that. I mean, if even Trevor Phillips says he keeps still gets stopped for driving while black, um, I think uh, I think it's it, it, the, the ID cards. I'm, I'm really focusing on work. That's what it's about. Yeah, yeah. Is can you get a job? You know, can you key into sort of public services? Um, you know, can you can you sort of make an application for a council house, whatever you, you I think it, it's all those things which actually um, which actually would, would count. And uh, as Rachel says, you know, she's been there. People people come because they want work. And yes, it's good that people want to work and want to maybe come and work. But you have to have some control over the numbers and who is here. I mean, at the moment, the census is a bit of a joke, isn't it? We just had the <laughs> census revelations. But actually, we don't we don't know. It's quite a I say at least probably a million. We have no idea. Also, if you if you have a if you do have a sort of clampdown on the black economy, you're going to get more taxes out of the system, and you're also going to have better 
protections for workers. So the problem at the moment is there's, there's too many people who are working without any kind of identifier and they, they just kind of then get lost in the system. They're then often abused and also the um, Treasury doesn't get any money out of them because they're not paying taxes. But is there, a, is there a, I mean, it's interesting because there's clearly, there is a school, there was a school of thought that this might be one uh, solution. You just don't get the feeling that this government, I mean, partly because it's so in the grip of short-termism and we're now only two years away from the next election and, and so on. No one is sort of mounting an argument about a major sort of reform or a big idea that you try to win people over to and then, you know, you might try and get through the problem. It's just sort of like, well, it's all Francis' fault, so if you give them some money, they'll sort it out. Yeah. Um, and then when, then when it doesn't change, we can still blame France. Well, we've given you the money, so why have you not sorted it out? It's a, yeah. We're sort of not getting our own house in order, maybe. I don't know if it maybe is just to do with the, the sort of short-termism which, which strikes into all, all of our politics now, Louis. Yes, I think so. But I think also that there's probably a great governmental fear that if they start to bring in ID cards, everybody would sort of say, oh, they're Tory cards, the Tories, oh, they're on us. And there'll be a lot of young idiots gluing themselves to the roads. And um, I, I think they're probably just afraid of a, a measure like that at the moment while things are so unstable and there's only yeah. less than two years left of the government before the election. It's sort of... Uh, I I can see why you'd want to push it onto the back burner. Libby, first of all, what's your expectation for the autumn statement on uh, on Thursday? How bad do you think it's going to get? Well, I, I hope it's going to be least bad for the most vulnerable. I mean, that's, that's, that's what everybody just has to hope. I mean, we're being warned that taxes are going up and so they should for better remunerated people and people with capital. And I hope there's going to be some fiddling around over matters like non-DOM and... Uh, I hope a challenge to nonsenses like the triple lock and, and rather more targeted means testing where people really need money. But I, I don't know. I, I can see that there's going to be a lot of, of howling about it. But I'm hoping uh, that it will be financially literate and <laughs> intelligent and clever. Oh, you know, you're so old-fashioned, Louis. I'm sorry. It's 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 the Rishi thing. It's pathetic. I mean, he may prove to be a complete damp squib, but there's just something about him which is sort of clever, and I do I do like that after what we've had the last few years. I'm going to tell. Let's speak to Paul instead. Uh, Paul Johnson, are you there? Yes. Hello. Ah, but good. Paul Johnson from the Institute of Fiscal Studies. Um, before we get to how bad or not it might be, can you clear something up for us? Because you know about these things, and and you, you how much did the Liz Truss? quasi quartang mini budget cost us is this figure of 30 billion being banded about uh, of being the the sort of the financial impact of it is that right is it higher or lower than that well there's some loss just because the national insurance increase was uh, reverse and um that's probably uh that that's probably about half that 30 billion number and then there's a loss because interest rates are higher than they otherwise would have been. The so-called moron premium, I'm afraid, is still being paid. In other words, uh, the government's paying more for its debt than it would have done had that mini budget never occurred. Now, I think it's quite difficult to put a precise number on it, but it's certainly, despite the fact it's being mostly reverse, it's still costing us quite a lot of money, I'm afraid. Okay, so then uh, how do you think it's going to shake down this week, uh, Paul? If you were advising Rishi Sunak uh, and uh, Jeremy Hunt, uh, how bad is it going to get? Well, the speculation today is that the Office of Budget Responsibility is going to be much gloomier even than than we at the IFS have been about the the scale of the public finance problem. The Financial Times this morning is reporting £100 billion uh, of borrowing 
uh, four or five years out, which is quite a lot worse than we were expecting. Um, if, if that's true, uh, then, I mean, and, and that would explain the, uh, the extent to which Jeremy Hunt has been going around saying it's all going to be awful. Um, that, 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 that's going to require some really big changes. Now, the difficult judgment is how much of that does he do immediately, as in to what extent are we going to see taxes rising next year? And to what extent is he going to say, well, there's lots of uncertainty here. Different people have got different projections. I'll do what needs doing, but I'll do it in two or three years' time when we know more about what's uh, what's happening. Now, I think one of the ironies of the Kwarteng Trust budget is that I think he will feel he has to do some tax rises in the short run because uh, the markets and indeed everyone else has become so uncertain about the credibility of this government that he needs to get some credibility up front. So that's a long way of saying I think we'll get some tax rises in the short run, as in next year, and we'll get some pretty eye-watering promises of spending cuts in particular three or four years down the road. Before we bring uh, Rachel and Libby back in, can you just explain for listeners fiscal drag? Because it's the thing that people are going to hear a lot about uh, as the week progresses. The, the, the Conservative Party manifesto in 2019 promised no increase in income tax or national insurance. Also, they did briefly say they would put up national insurance and then put it back down again. But uh, so how is it that everyone will end up paying more tax if they're not going to put up income tax? Well, fiscal drag is what happens when uh, you've got a chunk of inflation, which, of course, we've got, and you don't increase bits of the tax system in line with inflation, in particular in this context, the point at which you start to pay income tax or the point at which you start to pay higher rate income tax. So if that's held at its current £12,570 for the point at which you start to pay income tax, if that's held at the same level in cash terms for several years, uh, then it becomes worth less in real terms. And so more of your income is dragged into tax. And I think an extraordinary illustration of this is that in March 2021, Rishi Sunak said that he was going to freeze all of the income tax allowances and thresholds for four years. Now, he thought at the time that would be an £8 billion tax rise, because with modest inflation, that drags a bit more money into the tax system. What we now think is that will turn out to be a £30 billion tax increase, because inflation's so much higher. So it's turned out to be four times as big as he was intended back in March 2021, because inflation is so much higher, and because so much more money is going to be dragged into basic rate tax and higher rate tax. And we're going to end up with very, very many more higher rate taxpayers, if that point, that £50,000 point at which you start to pay higher rate tax is held in those cash yeah. terms because earnings are rising and so more people are moving into that over £50,000 level. Uh, let's bring in uh, Libby and Rachel now. Uh, Rachel, to what extent do you think that uh, Rishi Sunak and, and Jeremy Hunt have sort of landed the the blame game, if you like? I mean, it, for some, for a while, they were trying to say it was all sort of down to Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, which is sort of fine in the short term, but ultimately they're, that is literally the Tories. Um, mm. how, do they, how do they get through this in a way that they don't end up just looking like they're clearing up their own mess? I think it's difficult, and I think that mini-budget, um, the Trust Kwarteng mini-budget, is one of those moments in politics that is potentially a tipping point that people, that is now seared in the public memory, that the, the Conservatives aren't always 
economically competent and they can't necessarily be trusted with the nation's finances. I think it also, though, is, raises loads of really interesting questions for Labour. So when um, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt set out their kind of envelope, if you like, their spending and tax um, promises, does Labour match that kind of overall total and then divide up within it different balance between tax rises and spending cuts or whatever? Or do they completely um, say they don't agree with the actual premise of the whole thing? Uh, and I think for Labour, they're, they're kind of overriding thing at the moment is they've got to show they're economically <laughs> credible and competent. Yeah. So they'll be under huge pressure to match the spending totals, as of course they did in '97. Uh, Libby, um, anything? Well, either of you, anything? Do you have any, either of you want to ask Paul anything? Is the, the fountain of all financial knowledge while we're here, Libby? No, I'm very grateful for the, the fiscal drag explanation, though I'd got that. I, I'm just, I'm learning supply-side economics at the moment. This is a, a mad phrase, which I have finally have understood. No, thank you, Paul. Um, grateful, grateful for all enlightenment. Just in case anyone doesn't know, Paul, explain supply-side economics, supply-side reform. We heard a lot of it in the early days of, I was say, the early days of Liz Truss, uh, which was also the middle and end days as well. Explain what supply-side reform means and whether or not we should expect any of that this week. Well, supply-side reform it really is about economics and making the economy work better. So things that um, make it easier to invest, things that give you incentives to work more, things that uh, provide um, the, the, the sort of government investment, which makes it easier for businesses to um, uh, succeed. Any Anything which uh, does that stuff on what we call the supply side of the economy, in other words, uh, work, investment, uh, company behaviour, uh, inward investment from uh, the rest of the world. And that that's different from what we often hear about, which is the demand side, which is giving people more money to spend or getting more money into the economy to support it through a recession. And actually, for, for an economist, I mean, supply side economics is like 95% of what we do and what we think about most of the time is about how you design the tax system, it's about how you design the planning system, it's about how you design the welfare system, it's about how you uh, provide how, how you provide an appropriate um, context for big business to operate, and that's what, in the end, in the long run, it's in, that's what drives economic growth. And so, in the sense of talking about supply side economics, Liz Truss quasi quasi absolutely right. That's what you need to focus on. Yeah. And you know, government for the last decade or more has completely failed. I mean, it hasn't invested in education at all. It didn't, certainly for its first five years, didn't invest in infrastructure. It's been absolutely hopeless in sorting out the planning system. It's not done a very good job of designing the tax and the corporate tax system and so on. So there are lots of things that you do need to do. The thing from a political point of view is that you reap the rewards of that kind of change five or ten years in the future. You don't reap the rewards immediately and that yeah. makes it very hard for politicians to to get it right. Uh, lovely stuff. Well, just finally then, uh, Libby, your column today is all about the um, the joys of singing, even if not particularly well. Well, yes, we, we know school assembly is the law, a daily act of communal worship. We also know that most schools don't do it unless they're religious schools and that the government doesn't care. But it just means a lot of children after primary age never get that wonderful thing of singing together outside of a formal choir and people judging you on whether you're in tune or not. And I just think that it's something that raises the heart, raises the spirits. Um, I, I go on at enormous length in the paper about it, so I won't use up your time. No, 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 no. It's, a good, it's a good, it took me right back to, you know, well, in fact, my, my, my 40th few weeks ago, uh, the, the best bit was at the very end when they put some songs over, everyone knew the words, everyone joined in and sang together. Are you a big singer, Paul? Oh, you've got to be joking. <laughs> <laughs> 
I would, I would have hated having to do any more than I had to do at school. So I think, I think it'll be extremely cruel, both to those who can't sing and to the people who might be standing next to them. So no, I'm, I'm, I'm writing, not I'm writing a little song. I'm writing a little song for Paul about supply yeah, side economics. I, I, yeah, we'll to be sung at the Institute for Fiscal Studies Christmas karaoke party. Rachel, are you a big singer? I was in the school choir, but oh. not since then. Oh. But I think Libby's absolutely right, and it's a sort of wider thing about how education has just been narrowed down. It's all about exams. Yeah. And you should have much more drama, sport, music, the whole lot. Libby Purvis, Rachel Sylvester, and Paul Johnson there from the Institute for Fiscal Studies, and you can read them in The Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, Ukrainian refugees six months on. Hello, welcome to Off Air with Jane and Fee. I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. And this is the new and exclusive home of our joint podcasting exploits. Aren't we grand? (laughs) Every Monday to Thursday evening, we talk all things fact, fun, nonsense, utter gibberish, you name it, we talk about it. We also find ourselves joined by the great and the good. That makes it sound accidental, doesn't it? (laughs) So join us for Off Air with Jane and Fee. Monday to Thursday on the Free Times radio app and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Still to come, Basil Bush. But first, it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. 
So in October, the United Nations said there are over 7.6 million Ukrainian refugees across Europe, over 100,000 of them in the UK. It's all down to the Homes for Ukraine scheme launched back in March this year, which allowed Ukrainian refugees to come to the UK to flee the horrors of a war in their homeland. This was the statement from the then and now again levelling up Secretary Michael Gove when he first launched the Homes for Ukraine scheme. Our country has a long and proud history of supporting the most vulnerable during their darkest hours. We took in refugees fleeing Hitler's Germany, those fleeing repression in Idi Amin's Uganda, and of course those who fled the atrocities of the Balkan Wars. And we're doing so again with Homes for Ukraine. The British people have already opened their hearts in so many ways. I'm hopeful that many will also be ready to open their homes and to help those fleeing persecution find peace, healing and the prospect of a brighter future. That was Michael Gove back in March. But very quickly, the scheme became, well, almost overwhelmed, beset with serious issues, holding up refugees coming to the UK, mountains of paperwork, huge delays at visa processing centres and concerns over accommodation once the refugees arrived here. The then Minister for Refugees, Lord Harrington, Richard Harrington, came on my show and told me what he was doing to fix the problems. Before, people would, um, had to go to a visa centre and the government was criticised that um, visa centres were distances away, people had to queue, they weren't open the right hours and all this sort of thing. So what's happened now is that people with Ukrainian passports will be able to apply online. They will download the form. Um, By the way, the form is long and it's being abbreviated a lot. A shorter version will be online today. They will download their passport. The only delay then comes for security checks. But we've got that down to a way we expect within 24 hours, there will not be the visa delay. And many of those problems were fixed. But are Ukrainian refugees now facing a new crisis? The scheme meant they could come to the UK for up to three years and receive access to health care and benefits, provided a named, official, a named individual agreed to put them up for a minimum of six months. In lots of cases, those six months have now passed. Uh, While Valeria Antoshkina, a Ukrainian refugee living with a family in the UK, recently told Times Radio about the strain it put on her hosts. Of course, the situation is not very easy for everyone. So uh, they were very generous, but um, I think it's a time to... Mm, to find something, my own place for me and for my children. So I'm in process and I'm trying to do this. So now with those six months uh, up and Ukrainians wondering what comes uh, next, I'm joined in the studio by Lord Harrington, the former refugees minister. Good morning. Morning, Matt. Looking back then over the what six last six, eight months from the, the Russian invasion to where we are now, would you say the scheme has been a success? Well... I would say it's a success, but I would say that, wouldn't I, Uh, since my name was on the tin. Um, It was a brave scheme. Um, What actually happened was Boris Johnson, with his best intentions in the world, announced that we were going to have an uncapped scheme to bring refugees here. Well, self-evidently, we just did not have the accommodation available. We've seen what's happened with taking a lot of hotels capacity for people from Afghanistan, etc. It's very unsatisfactory, particularly for families. So we launched a Homes for Ukraine scheme, which was putting people in the, in the houses and the flats of really very well-meaning hosts. We advertised for hosts and there were 210,000 put the name forward. Um, so has it been a success or not? Well, if I could go through, first of all, the plus things. Yeah, it is 143,000. 
it's probably near 150,000, but 143,000 was the last announced yeah. figure. Um, by and large, those people have been, well, they've all been very well welcomed um, into people's houses. We asked for a moral commitment of, well, six months commitment. It's not like a legal contract yeah, yeah, or yeah, anything. Yeah. Um, and obviously asking people to ex- extend. And the early indications are that about 75% of people are happy to extend that. Um, that's um, on the plus side. Um, the government, I think, and credit to them, and I'm not part of it anymore, so I would be able, and as I think you know me, Matt, I would criticise if I thought. But with the money side, etc., the uh, Significant money is being paid to local authorities and to people's house, uh, to the host as a thank you payment. So, plus side, yeah, I mean, 140 odd thousand in five months compared to, I mean, the, the original clip um, Michael Gove mentioned about the the, the Kinder transport well, that yeah. was 10,000. Yeah, the Syrian program. So in terms of scale, it's yeah, huge. The Syrian program, which I was responsible for, was 20,000 over four years. So here we are with 140 odd thousand over. A period of uh, five or six months. So that's the plus side. Um, to show why I'm not um, in the cabinet or prime minister, I'm now going to tell you the negative side. Um, and um, I would say it was always very brave. People put the name forward. Uh, many people, everyone did it with the best intentions. Mm-hmm. But actually, you can be absolutely wonderful, as most people are. But if you've got someone in a small property and you've got uh, perhaps a couple of children and their mum... Um, and you just have pressure on that space. And um, I wouldn't be horrible and say the novelty wears off because that's making out that they weren't very well-meaning in the first place. But it is what many people thought it was more temporary than it's turned out. So I think that sort of comes with that territory. I think that's the first point. And secondly, I do feel it fair to say that with increased living costs, etc., the... um, £350 a month thank you payment, which, by the way, is not to cover food and stuff like that, but it does... You know, people living it in helps. your house, you've got your electricity, yeah, gas yeah. bill, people are showering, people are using the kitchen, all that kind of stuff. Um, there, there is a case, in my opinion, to um, double that after the first six months. And before I left, I asked the government to do so, because from the government's point of view, that actually is a money-saving thing, because if people... Um, like the lady that was on the first clip uh, just now, yeah. you know, if they have to find their own properties, which many people do, and they can't afford it themselves, and by the way, I would point that 60% of people over 18 are already in work, so yeah. many of them are just able to, to rent. But otherwise, the financial responsibility for that uh, is on the state. Which, yeah, of course, the state, which would be more, more expensive than... Yeah. And so this is, we'll speak to some, um, some Times Radio listeners, actually, took in some, uh, some Ukrainians. But just on that specific point, you said you, you suggested doubling it, but you're not in government anymore. Do you know why you're not in government anymore? Because, because your role doesn't exist. Well, the, no, and, and I actually, when Boris asked me to do it, I yeah. won't do the Boris impression, but uh, <laughs> which I, we need you all to help. Um, it was for a temporary period yeah. to set up, get the policy sorted and set up the machinery. Yeah. For example, deal with the visa situation, sort out uh, with all the local authorities. How the, So yeah. I, I wanted to do it for, I promised Boris a minimum of six months, yeah. which I did. Now, the reason I recommended there should be no d- specific minister is because there's a civil service machinery now in place to deliver this. Yeah. Now, if there's a new policy, if uh, 
Rishi decides that, um, you know, we're going to do a whole different scheme or um, something completely changes, where there's policy matters, then they would need uh, a minister specifically to yeah, do yeah. it. So, I, but to me now, it's about, um, sorry to make it sound impersonal to the refugees, I don't mean it, but it's a delivery yeah. and distribution system that's in place. Well, let's now speak to uh, some of the... Richard's uh, going to stay with us uh, here in the studio, but we can speak to Olga and Sletvana. Uh, they are two Ukrainian refugees living here under the Homes for Ukraine scheme. Good morning. Morning. Uh, nice over with us. Uh, we've also got Sarah, who's Svetlana's uh, host. Hi, Sarah. Hello. So, Olga, let's start with you. Uh, just tell us your story. Where did you, uh, where did you come from? How did you get here? Who are you living with? Hello, my name is Olga. Uh, I am living uh, with my hosts, uh, Davida Redman and Brian Redman. Uh, next to me, Caroline Creel, uh, this uh, woman who did the possible and impossible everything for Ukrainian people. Um, she's host my cousin. So I am living with my sponsors even seven months. And how's it been? How have you found the welcome? How have you found living in the UK? Uh, I'm happy to be here. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank the UK and all people for help and support. Many thanks to Caroline. Uh, many thanks to my sponsors. Um, they opened not just their house, they opened their hearts. It's like my English-British family now here. So uh, I cannot express in words my gratitude to these people. And you mentioned Caroline. Caroline Quinn is a Times Radio listener who got in touch with us. Yeah, Caroline, how many families, Ukrainian families, have you, have you helped uh, into the UK? Um, about 250. <laughs> wow. And how did you go about doing that? What was the, what was the point at which you, you, you know, you helped one and then suddenly you've helped 250? That's amazing. Um, it, it, it started pretty early. It started before the visa scheme opened. Just before, You know, I could see what was happening. We were all watching the news, listening to the radio. And you could just see this massive migration that needed to happen. And, you know, me and, and like-minded people were, were all there saying, come on, let us help. Let's bring these people over to the UK. Let's get them into Europe and let's just get them somewhere safe so that, you know, we know what's going to happen in Ukraine. Let's just get them out of it as quickly as possible. And, and that's really how it started. Sarah was was there with me all the way as well. And, you know, we just hit Facebook, actually. That's how we did it. We, we went on as many Facebook sites as we possibly could. There was no organised kind of process from the government at that time. And as soon as the government said, you know, we're going to let you do some visas, we were like, OK, let's get it all ready so that on the day the visa scheme opens, we can start hitting it. And we did. We did about 30 or 40 visas on day one. But it, it was really a case of trawling Facebook you know, reaching out for people. We got to know priests in Poland as, as everyone poured over the border into Poland. So you, know, you we, so you were on Facebook initially looking for Ukrainians to help and then yeah. subsequently you found people who were willing to open up their homes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was, on, I was on Facebook looking for people and then I was on my village Facebook to start with going, <laughs> I want to take in a Ukrainian. Does anyone else want to? It won't work if there's only one. You know, we need a community. Yeah. And you know, I think we've brought about 100 Ukrainians into our village now. And it's only a small village. It's Mayfield in East Sussex. And, 
you know, it's actually changed the volume of people in the village. It's quite amazing. And they're, and they're a big part of our community now. So let's bring in Sarah then. Sarah, explain what went through your mind when you saw what was unfolding in Ukraine when Russia invaded uh, early this year. What went through your mind when you thought, OK, I've, I can help? I think like lots of people, I just was desperate to help in some way. So I started off collecting items and getting them to people who were traveling down to Poland. And then very quickly, we were told possibly not the best thing to do. Um, And then we could see the number of people that would need rehoming. You know, the countries on the border of Ukraine just could not cope with the volumes of people coming over. Um, My husband and I were just sitting one evening watching the news. We're lucky enough to have a large house. I'm not working at the moment, so I've got time. And if it wasn't going to be us who stepped up, then who was going to step up? Um, so we just felt we absolutely had to do something. And you're there on the line with uh, Olga. Morning, Olga. Uh, what's your... Svetlana. So, so, sorry, Svetlana, that's right. Um, um, Svetlana, tell us your story. How did you... Whereabouts in Ukraine are you from? And how did you get from Ukraine to, to being with Sarah? Uh, <clears throat> I'm with my son, came... Seven seven months ago to UK, we are from uh, big city Kharkiv in the east of Ukraine, and we are living with a perfect perfect family for us. And my son is happy, and he is so uh, now best friends with Sarah's youngest son. And uh, I don't know, <laughs> everyone is so kind to us, and we are happy to be here. And how did it feel, that process, going back seven months? How did it feel leaving your home in Kharkiv to come to the UK? Uh, it was so so fast. I didn't think about this. I just done. And that's all. I, uh, I had my car and I was driving to, like, uh, to UK as well <laughs> from my city. I was driving three days to west of Ukraine and after that to Poland and after to UK. And what made you want to come to the UK specifically? Was it because you, did you heard about this scheme or did you got family here or what, what, what made you want to come to the UK? Uh, I have been here like three times okay. for visit my friend and I knew how, what is the England, how it's look, what is that? And maybe because of my English, I had a, I have a little bit knowledge in English. Yeah. And that's why it was my choice. <laughs> We're looking at yeah, Ukrainian refugees who came to the UK, what, six, seven, eight months ago, and how they're coping uh, now. In part, thanks to uh, Times Radio listener Carolyn Quinn, who got in touch, having helped over 250 Ukrainian families into the UK, helping them with visa applications and matching them with hosts all over the country. Uh, Caroline, um, explain how things are now six months in. Are Because clearly, you know, in the, the rush to help uh, back in what, February and March, there will be people now who wonder... Well, how, I don't know how much longer I could, you know this will last for the the payments we were hearing from Richard. You know, the cost of living crisis means that's not going as far as it uh, would have done. What sort of happened to those two hundred and fifty families? How many are still with the people originally? How are how are they coping with the difficulties? So, I, I think a high percentage are still with their original sponsors, but there are definitely some that we have had to move now. So. So we have three or four families living in hotels while they wait for another solution. Um, We have families that we've started moving into rental properties. 
Our local council has been quite generous. We're now receiving £500 a month instead of 350 and we're going to get a bonus payment at, at the end of one year. Um, so I, I don't think money is potentially the driver around here. Um, I think it's, as you say, it's people's space, isn't it? You know, you are cramming more people into houses than perhaps you originally intended. And, and that can be tough on people. And, and I think it's fair to say that, you know, at some point, these families will want to move on and, and some already are. But the big problem for me at the moment is finding the rentals. So most of them are, they are working, but they're also receiving universal credit. And landlords don't want to touch universal credit applicants. And it's a massive problem around here for me. You know, most of these families come back to me when, you know, when their sponsorship is ending, they come back and say, can you help us again? And we go into the second cycle of finding them somewhere to live. Which presumably is harder second time around because there's not the same sort of national focus and and response that there was. Because we've got Richard as the former minister, Richard, your your response to what Caroline was just saying? Well, um, I think Caroline, uh, her response, Karen's response is quite typical. I mean, we estimated about 25% would not stay, um, would not be in the same house. Um, Two ways of dealing with this. On the rental front, um, what um, she said about landlords, first of all, there is a big shortage of rental property, Mm -hmm. no question about that. And secondly, landlords usually expect credit references because people, you know, the employment record, bank references, which, of course, refugees don't have. Uh, We made arrangements for them to open bank accounts, but um, as a guarantor of a lease. So we've given power to the local authorities to guarantee the lease for the refugees, which means that from the landlord's point of view, the tenant is the local council, um, and from the... Um, refugees' point of view, they pay the rent, be it from their universal credit or be it from their salaries. Yeah. Many of them are working. working yeah, yeah. They pay it to the council while, for, uh, while a year goes on and then they just become regular tenants because they've got that history. Yeah. So that was the way around that. And on the second point um, about people being rematched, which is yeah. what Karen was, was explaining, this is... It's difficult because people put down roots in a particular area. Yeah. Um, it's more difficult in a small village like Mayfield, obviously, because yeah, comparatively yeah, yeah. little, one school, if that, etc. But um, on the other hand, there were 210,000 people put their name down. Now, at the moment, there's about 140,000 refugees. So if you take the average as being about three per household, that's about, just doing it in my head. So there will be people still, who actually put their names down and were disappointed. Exactly. Exactly. First time man who so, might be able to come forward. So we are doing quite a lot of rematching, or yeah. the government's doing quite a lot yeah. of rematching, but locally. And the councils do have a lot of power. Yeah. Because uh, the Mayfield Council, um, which I have visited actually, I think when I was mm. uh, a minister on a visit, they, they chose to give, they have the budget, they can allocate more of that to households if they want, because the government's paying them £10,500 a year per refugee that's not per household yeah so if they wish to allocate some of that which is what carl was talking about bumping up the uh bumping up the money exactly i want to bring uh olga svetlana back in uh olga how how have you uh found it uh has there been any sort of tensions in the house do you do you worry about i don't know outstaying your welcome or what's how how have you felt as time has gone on Mm, no i'm feeling like i'm unsafe now yeah i understand uh I'm appreciated for support of my host. 
I understand that uh, uh, I can stay here. They said to me I can stay here um, so long, so I need it. Uh, so I am so lucky to be here. Uh, and um, I try to find a job. I try to improve my English. Uh, so I have no problem you have here no problem. now. Yeah, yeah. And are yeah. you um are you are you hoping that you'll you want you will be able to go back to Ukraine? Yes, I hope because my family in Ukraine, my parents, my son. So I hope I hope like every Ukrainian that war is finished soon and we we can we can come back come back to to Ukraine. Sorry. No, and Svetlana, you're, um, if you had any issues, uh, but it's a bit difficult because you've got Sarah on the... On the Sarah, cover <laughs> your ears. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, Svetlana, if you, if you had any issues, and are you, are you also hoping, hoping to go back to Ukraine? Uh, yes, I hope, because my husband's there, and we are speaking with him every day, and we already been in Ukraine for two weeks with my son to visit my husband. Uh, but now my mom came, uh, three weeks ago, and with my niece, and I have more relatives here. It's very nice and helpful for me, and my son as well. And Sarah again, like a, our angel, support mm-hmm. me, my son, and my mom, and my niece, and everyone. And I think I'm really lucky. I had no problem with my host family. I hope Sarah mm-hmm. had no as <laughs> well. <laughs> That's that's good. I'm glad. I'm glad it's all done. What before I let you both go? Is there anything that you found about being in the UK which you just don't understand, or that you don't like? I don't know whether it's the the weather or the food or something <laughs> weird or the Olga. Anything anything that surprised you or you didn't like or that, that, that you you think is particularly weird that we do in the UK? Yes, I'm surprised. I'm surprised because because I thought that the England it's rain every day and cold, <laughs> uh, but here's more comfortable and even in Ukraine. Uh, well, we had a, we had a record breaking heat wave this summer, so to really put pay to that <laughs> idea that it's always wet and cold. What about you, Svetlana? Uh, I don't like public transport here. It's all. <laughs> Terrible, and I don't know. It's quite expensive trains and buses. I'm with car now, and I'm so happy to be here with car. But if you have no car and you live in village, it's terrible. Yeah, absolutely. But she's not wrong, is she, Richard? No, I I was hoping when you asked that question, they said, "Well, the thing we really don't like about the UK is radio presenters." Mate. So what can I do? <laughs> it turns out they love the radio presenters. Well, they do. Yeah, they it's do. the buses that are rubbish. Yeah. Uh, well, best of, best of luck to all of you, and, and Caroline in particular. Thank you for getting in touch and for for everything that you've done. Um, just finally, Richard Harrington, what would you like to see happen? This, you, the, particularly that you think that now we're sort of six months in this payment thing. Does sound like well, it's quite a big thing the government could do. You said does. that you'd, yes, you'd I, suggested it. That's right. Where is it in the government machine now? Well, I can't. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it was suggested, and it was looked favourably by the treasury because the business case was actually very good. But if I could just leave one thought as to what I'd really like, yeah, is for this system of sponsorship to be kept in place for whatever tragedy happens anywhere in the world. So that when a Prime Minister makes a pledge, which they all do with the best intentions, be it Cameron, Brown, Ted Heath back with the... etc., that there is a mechanism 
for people to come and be welcomed into people's homes. So there's like a standing system in yeah. place. So if I could, in my six months as minister, if that is one thing comes from it, I would hope it would be that. Which is really good to see you. Thank you for joining us, former former refugees minister. We also heard from, uh, like I said, Cameron Quinn, uh, who did so much to to bring uh, families over. We heard from Sarah, who's the host of Svetlana, and uh, and Olga as well. So really appreciate uh, you sharing your stories. We did uh, have a statement from uh, the government saying we are proud that Homes for Ukraine has helped more than a hundred thousand people flee Putin's barbaric invasion and find safety in the UK. We know the majority of their sponsors want to continue hosting beyond uh, six months, and all arrivals have access to benefits and employment from day one. We are providing with funding per person to cover additional costs and we're with work, working with them to ensure Ukrainians are receiving the help they need to access housing. Uh, really pleased to be able to do that, particularly because it just came from Caroline as a, as, a, as a Times radio listener. Now on the Redbox podcast, as promised, it's Basil Brush. Now here on Times radio... Can I just say, I'm doing plus my, your chairs up. No, hang on. I'm doing my important bit to camera. Doing your important bit to camera. I'm doing my important <laughs> bit to this chair. Go on. Now, here on top... <laughs> give it a go. Go on, give it a go with your chair. It's great fun, you know. Come on, give it a go. Now, here on Times Radio, we know that politicians don't always have all the answers, which is why at this time every week we like to ask someone who's not a politician what they would do if they ruled the world. And today I'm delighted to be joined by statesman, entertainer and... Uh, Fox. Yes. It's only Basil Brush. It's only Matt Chorley. <laughs> boom, boom. Come on, can I do it again? Yeah, you've been enjoying the chairs, Basil. <laughs> Great fun. I've got to say, it's lovely to be here at the Times Radio. Dead posh. Look at your view. It's nice, isn't it? It's a lovely view. Uh, now, Basil, we're putting you in charge of the world. Are you? Yeah. I wouldn't do that. Well, so if we, well, if we did put you in charge of the world, yes. what would be the first big change that you'd like to make? Oh, cracky. Do you know, I gave this a lot of thought. But then I thought, well, if I did rule the world, it'd be like that Leslie Brickers song, If I Ruled the World. Yes. Right? And I thought, well, that's rather good. Life is a musical. And, and uh, do, do people sing on Times Radio? You're allowed to sing. Well, I don't, do but you yeah. can. Go yeah. on, then. This might make you cry. Right, OK. Cry, stop it. We can't take it any longer. <laughs> <laughs> boom, boom. Right, so I would think, if I ruled the world... Every day would be the first day of spring. Every heart would have a new song to sing. And we'd sing of the joy every morning would bring. And I thought, wouldn't that be a nice place? Oh, oh. If every day... Basil, like that's, the first day that's of so spring. moving. Yeah, I know. So... I did think that because I thought, you know, it's rather nice. You know, because we can be just nice to each other, couldn't we? And then, of course, another song came to mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that wonderful Joni Mitchell. Yes. I was listening to it only the other day when they talk about paving paradise and putting up parking oh, lots. Oh, yes, that's terrible. It, it is, absolutely. And they, they took all the trees and put them in a tree museum and charged you a dollar and a half to see them. Don't you always seem to go. They don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pave paradise and they stack up a parking lot. Ooh, whap, whap. You can join in with me. Like, I, don't, I don't, nobody wants to hear whap, that. Whap, whap, whap. <laughs> so you can see where I'm going with my songs. And banning words like um, efficiency, super efficiency, profit margins, and growth, 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 and replace it with earth, earth, earth. Oh, that's very nice. People will like that a lot. You like what I've done? Earth, yes. Earth, earth, earth. We've got to start thinking of the planet, because in a hundred years' time, another musical would spring to mind, which is Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. (laughs) 
Because it'd be flooded. So that's the big change you want to make, Basil. Uh, yeah, what I sort do. of leader do you think you'd be? Are you a dictator? Are you a delegator? Are you a hand, a pause on, pause off? Oh, hands off, pause off. Well, I thought when you first mentioned dictating, I just thought I was going to be talking to a secretary and having a letter written. Um, so that's as far as I know about a dictatorship. Good. But then I thought I'd better Google this. Yes. Because it's quite a big word. It's got three syllables. Yes. And I'm a talking fox. So dictator and all that, a delegator. So yep. I looked it up. So dictators, of course, they tell people to do things. Go over there and move that chair over there. But they don't care about whether you are well cared for or, or what, to, what happens to you. Yep. Whereas a delegator will go, would you be so kind? Just to go over there and just move that chair and, you know, don't trip up on anything on the way yeah. and, um, and maybe get yourself a coffee while you do it. So when I talk to my friend, Mr. Martin, I say, oi, go and get me a coffee and you can have one yourself. So that's more delegating. So I think I would be a delegator. No, so I would be there and say just very politely, would you, Mr. Matt, don't let people walk all over you. You just go over there and just be, be nice. So that, that's what that's I'd be. That's very so, nice. Yeah, so that's I'd be nice. a nice fox and we'd have lots of laughter and fun because one of the main things you've got to do is enjoy yourselves because you're not here long enough. That's very nice. Now, Basil, um, yes. one of the things that we always ask is who would you have in your team? Ah. But you've got quite a team already, haven't you? You've put together for your, your new Christmas single. Oh, it's funny you should say that. My Christmas single, Boom Boom, It's what? Christmas Again. It's what we're here for. It's what we're here for, as opposed to Boom Boom, It's Christmas Again. I call it Boom Boom, It's Christmas Again. Boom Boom, It's Christmas Again. And it's really something special to be seeing my friends. I'm travelling in time so I can do it again the way I should have done before. And of course, in it, I've got Mr. Blobby. Excellent. <laughs> of course, we've got Mr. Blobby. We've got Zippy and George and many of my friends from CBBC. Oh, my favourites. So actually, these would form part of my team. And I was thinking, if you don't mind. No. I was thinking, if we could get my Christmas single to number one. Yes. Or possibly 11 with Taylor Swift filling up the other 10 places. Um, to number one, I promise you, I'll be going for number 10 in January. Very good. Downing Street. Very good. And my team would consist of Mr Blobby for Minister for Health and Safety. I think he'd be rather good. I think he'd be good. Yeah, Zippy and George, they yeah. could be, you know, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And, and I think Bungle, because he likes holidays, he could be the Foreign Minister. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's quite, you've been working out, haven't you? Uh, I, mean, that, I really haven't. Yeah. Um, uh, and because all political careers always end in failure in the end, Basil. Yes, yes. Uh, what would Basil Bush, what would be your vice that means you'd end up having to resign from office? Oh, my goodness me. I was going to say Kelly Minogue because we're both the same size. Size <laughs> two and a half. <laughs> Here we go. This is my vice. Would you kindly open the map? Oh, oh, oh Basil. Put that there. Basil, look open at that. The it's a bag of jelly babies. It is a bag of jelly babies. If you open them, you will see why that is my vice. And they're very Moorish. This would to, bring me down. Am I allowed to have one? You can have as many as you like. Oh, I do. Get the boy ones, there's more to those. That's you, it. You, oh, yeah, you, give, give that to me. Oh, 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 Basil, well, you've got very sharp teeth. There we are. Oh, oh, yeah. Very nice. That's lovely, that. Very nice. You see, they're quite Moorish. So I think jelly babies or Kylie Minogue would be my downfall. Unfortunately. Jelly Babies with Carly Minogue, that was Jelly, probably... Oh, uh, oh, oh, now you're talking. But Jelly Babies with you, Mr Matt, that's all right as that's well. That's completely fine. No, that's very nice. Yeah, now, you, you can keep this. Mm. Mm. Yeah, you see, you can't talk now. No, I've got a mouthful. Yeah, no. absolutely. Mm. Basil, remind yes. us what the song's called and where people can find it. Right, the song is called Boom Boom, It's Christmas Again. Yep. It's coming out on November the 25th, so it, you know it's going to be out there on all platforms, you know, Amazon, iTunes, all of that, raising money for the Shooting Star Hospice 
and save the children. What a lovely thing. Oh, you are very kind to say that. You know, we do, we do Christmas singles every year, but this one is going to be extra special because it has featured everybody that I've worked with for the last 60 years, except you, Mr. Mitchell, <laughs> because it's the first time. I wasn't asked, I wasn't asked to appear on the six, maybe next year, Basil. Oh, I'd ask you next year, certainly, absolutely. That's well, very good. It's been an absolute pleasure, not least because I think you're the first person who's ever come on in Five All the World uh. who's given me... A bag of jelly babies. Well, or giving you a present at all. A present at all. Or a, du- or, or a brown envelope with a fiver in it. <laughs> we don't do that sort of thing. Well, of course, of course you don't. But, um, yeah, I'm ready for a few more jelly babies, actually. Yeah, so do you want to then, Basil? Yeah, Basil, Basil Brush, thank you so much for coming on Times Radio and telling us what you would do if you ruled the world. Here, I have another you. one. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, he's a good boy. Oh, he's so a good boy. Come along Woo-hoo. with Woo-hoo. me. Come on, let's do the Christmas that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10, email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on very soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 